last night when I came up, um, that part in that song where it says he knows the stars by name. He literally put them there. He put these massive burning at millions and millions of degrees stars in the sky. They all operate in their own way. They operate inside of this gravitational concept that none of us understand. And yet he knows every one of them by name. Have you ever thought about that for a second? We make star registries, right? To name a star after somebody you love. And it's like, sorry, God already named it. You know, that's Bob, that's Sue, that's Joe. Nice to meet you. That's not your name. <clears throat> but it is absolutely amazing to me that God literally knew all of them. He placed them there strategically right where he wanted them. He caused them to burn like they burn. And yet, for some reason, when I look in the sky, I forget to go, oh my God. God, you are awesome. And this morning I woke up and my wife and I, we have a four-day-old in our house now that's, we, we do um, foster care. And, um, oh my gosh, so if I start like fading off, <laughs> just kind of help him Jesus, you know, and suddenly I'll come alive. But um, I was sitting there holding her this morning and uh, you know how like there's that checklist you go through when they're crying, you have no clue? It's like diaper, check, good, you know, pacifier, feed them. Then finally, where's my wife? You know, that's the <laughs> final of the checklist. But she finally stopped crying and she kind of settled down like, like uh, newborns do. And she kind of settled in my arms and her, her little hand fell into my hand. And it hit me as I looked down at that. God knows her. In Psalm 139, it said God wove her together. She's fearfully, she's wonderfully made. He knows her name. He knew what her name was going to be before her mom named her. He knew the day she would be born. He knows the day she's going to die. He knows what makes her sad. He knows what makes her happy. He knows everything about her. And even though I don't have a clue, as she's sitting there crying and I'm like, hey, God does. And, it, and I was thinking through that and how often we get caught up in the reality that sometimes I don't think we really God, think God knows what's best for us. He knit us together. He wove us. He put us in this universe that he created on this globe that he created with all the gravitational pull that pulls us down with the laws of nature that keep us where we're at. And then somehow we, somehow, we look at God and we go, God, I don't think you know what's going to really make me happy. And so therefore, God, what's really going to make me happy is if I had a better marriage, better kids, a nicer car, a better home, a kicking surround sound system, <laughs> plasma screen TV, a recliner couch that literally I hit a button and it, it, it rotates itself like a wheelchair over to the restroom, props me up, I'm able to do what I'm supposed to do, puts me back down and brings me back. To me, I'm thinking, if I just had this, I would be so happy. I call it the if I disease. If I had this, if I had that. If I could just lose 35 pounds, I would be so happy. We just buy into it so quick. If I, if I, if I, if I. And we never bother to go to the scriptures and say, God, all right, you made me. You know me better than I know me. You know what makes me sad. You know what makes me glad. You know what makes me all these other things. If I'm going to truly find what's going to make me happy in life, God, you've got to show me because I don't get it. 
I'm sitting here in this world trying to make myself happy. I mean, I'm the loser that sits up late and watches uh, infomercials. I'm one of them, okay, just so you know. I really do think the bunner sizer will, like, reduce it. You know, I'm just that guy that's like, yeah, that looks like it could work. And then if it doesn't, I'm the guy that calls up and mocks them. Like, this was going to work, huh? What'd you do it for? We're just, we, we get into this thing of how am I going to make myself happy? And we don't go to the scriptures. And I believe the Apostle Paul hit the nail on the head. Go with me to Philippians 4. And I was laughing. Somebody in the back told me every time you've preached, it's been different. So I'm sure this morning, God is new every morning, and here we go. See what happens. But in Philippians uh, 4, In verse 11. See, Paul understands a secret that I don't think we do. I don't think I get it. I'll be honest with you. This has been something my wife and I have been working through on, on different levels. And, uh, but in verse 11, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to go along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of abundance and suffering need. And then look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul has a secret that, gosh, I have been seeking desperately to understand. I can do all things. I can learn what it means to have complete content, happiness. I can learn what this life means but Paul uses this whole thing, like he says one thing, I've learned what it is to be content with what I, when I have plenty. And all of us are like, yeah, I'm cool with that. How about when you are in need? Have you learned to be content in need? And in fact, here's the bigger question. Would you be willing to put yourself in the position of need in order that all this stuff that we have would not get in the way of understanding what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this is a big question that I think, and, it's the, and I'm going to be doing a series on it. I'm going to ask everybody that speaks this summer to, to think through this because this has literally wrecked my life in the good sense of the word. Because I desperately want to know in the midst of this living in the, American, in the United States of America, in Southern California, in beautiful Simi Valley, California, as I look around and I see everybody trying to pursue happiness, my biggest fear is that I've started to buy more into what the world says will give me happiness than what God will give me happiness. I really believe I have. And Paul comes in and he says, I've learned to be content. And he goes on, go back a few verses before this in Philippians 3. And I want to show you why he's content. <clears throat> Watch this. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost. All this stuff, all the things that made me powerful and rich and climbed the ladder and got everything I wanted, I count them all as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And right now we're saying, Paul, you moron, don't suffer. Don't lose things. And I count them but and most of your translations say rubbish because we're trying to be nice and prim and proper. It should be literally dung, manure, 
If your kids are here, it's poo-poo. It's these things, it's just this stuff. He counts it as what's left that we flush down the toilet and we try to get rid of so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own because I can't get to God by any other means other than by faith and faith alone. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him Look at these words. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, what? listen to what he's doing. He's putting it out in front of everybody. He says, I know all these things look good, man. That plasma screen TV looks so nice. And trust me, 62 inches of beautiful color when you're trying to sit down and watch the Super Bowl is almost worship. But he says, I got something bigger. That screen on your wall, it's doo-doo in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And see, my biggest concern, I, I think my biggest concern that the church faces today is not homosexuality running rampant, is not drugs, is not Iraq, is not terrorism, is not all the things that we've made it. See, I think the biggest thing facing the church today is really understanding what Paul meant when he said, I have learned to be content because I have learned in this whole concept of the resurrection. Last time that I spoke, when I spoke on Good Friday, I talked about this amazing cross. And one of the things I'd like to do and while Francis is gone, tell me if you like this, I'd like to move the cross over and I would like to put a big, giant, empty tomb right next to it. See, because you can't have one without the other. See, the cross is where Jesus Christ paid my sins and the tomb is where he came out and he said, I'm God, therefore that's why I could pay for your sins. See, you can't detach them. It's like a two-way ticket. If you don't have one or the other, it's gone. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's where we're gonna go, so you can go ahead and start turning there, Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians understand something very, very important. He's gonna look at them and he's gonna say, first of all, I love you guys. You guys are the best thing in the world. Jesus died for you. You're going to go to heaven. And in about nine verses, he says nice things about them. And for the rest of the book, I mean, he pulls out the paddle and whoops their little tail. I mean, it is a spanking like only a dad that's mad could do. And he puts them out and he says, you guys have missed the point. He said, number one in chapter one and part of chapter two, you missed the cross. You guys think your little song and a dance you do in front of people is bringing people to Jesus. He goes, no, it's the power of the cross. And then he says in chapter two, and it's the spirit. And don't you ever forget that. And the moment you think you're doing it, you're a moron. Chapter three says, and yeah, by the way, you put yourself under all these teachers and you've aligned yourself with people. Some are of Francis and some are of Doug and some are of, and he says, that's cockamamie. That's baloney. You align yourself underneath God and God alone through the word of God. That's it. Chapter five, he comes along and there's a kid sleeping with his stepmom and he goes, what in the world? We've become like the world. Chapter six, Christians are taking each other to court. Chapter seven, they don't get a, have a clue about marriage and divorce and all these things. Chapter 8, 9, and 10, God had given them freedom and things in which they can use to serve God, but the problem is they started to serve themselves. Chapter 11, he comes in, and they were taking communion to get drunk and get fat. Chapter 12, their churches are going off the deep end. Their women are going crazy. Their men don't have a clue what's going on. Chapter 13, 
he goes, where's the love? And then chapter 14, he comes in and he goes, you all are messed up. <laughs> even the outside world in chapter 14, he uses hyperbole to say, even the outside world looking at you going, what in the world is happening here? This is absolutely stupid. And in chapter 15, which is his longest chapter in all of the book of 1 Corinthians, he comes into this one and he says, not only do you not mess with the cross, do not mess with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't mess with it. Because when I was 21 years old and I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, it wasn't just the cross. The cross was amazing and I am so glad for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But the day, can you imagine that those ladies show up at the tomb and it's empty? And they say to him, Jesus isn't here. Remember, he told you he was going to be buried. He was going to die, but he was going to rise again. He was going to demonstrate to the world that what he did on the cross, he was going to verify by coming back from the grave, declaring to the universe and to the world, I am God and I've paid the penalty for sin. And Paul comes in and he says, don't you dare mess with that resurrection. Don't mess with it. Because you mess with the resurrection, you rip the guts out of the gospel. And the Corinthians continue just to buy into this worldly idea. And I believe, by the way, we do too. I've noticed it in my own life. I've noticed it. And I'm working on it. But he says to him, your problem is you bought into a false idea of the resurrection. See, they bought into this concept in which somehow, and if you've ever seen Gladiator, Gladiator actually depicts in almost a nice way how they thought the end of time would come. And so people in the church were actually buying into this concept that when I die, I enter off into this like ethereal, ghostly spirit world of spirits just kind of oozing in this soup. And I actually enter into an unreality that is more like a dream, which you saw like in Gladiator. This dream state where I go there and my wife is there and my kid's there and my dog's there and in my white house with the white picket fence and the nice tree in the front. And, you know, that's what, we, that's what they were saying. This was, this was the resurrection. And Paul's like, you morons. Not it at all. See, he understood this very thing. And listen close, because this is kind of where we're going to be going today. He realizes that the moment that we buy into wrong thinking, that what comes behind wrong thinking about everything, including the resurrection, is always wrong behavior. Wrong thinking always leads to wrong behavior. I always have people that come into my office and say, whatever happened to my kid? He was so good. No, he wasn't. He just looked good on the outside. The reality of your kid has finally come to the surface and I put my arm around them and to the best of my ability, I love them and I, even if I have to stroke their hair and say it's going to be okay, this is the reality of your kid. Praise God, do you believe truth is good? And Paul is saying wrong thinking always re- leads to wrong behavior and especially around the resurrection. And he lays out what the resurrection is. And, and join me in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse, 30, or in verse 29. <clears throat> now watch what he does. Because if we're really going to understand what Paul understood about being content and really finding what it is about life, we need to understand, I think, what's going on here. So look at verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, first of all, you're like, Huh? That's weird. And there are some religious groups that teach that somehow you can be baptized for people that are dead. Let me just tell you, no, you can't. 
It's appointed once for a man to die, and then what? Judgment, okay? You can't, like, help him out. I hate to tell people that believe that. You can't. Once a person's dead, they're dead, and we can't do anything about it. So what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, this word that's used in here, for the dead, actually should, would be better translated not for the dead, but because of the dead, on, in light of the dead. What? See, what was going on at this time in, in, the, in the Roman Empire was the starting, especially around the writing of the First Corinthians, was the start of a persecution on the church, which they were about ready to feel in force, which comes about later when Nero, in 64 AD, starts going to town on the Christian church. And what's happening is, is the unbelieving world is watching this church that is being marched off, sometimes even to their death, at the moment that they believe in Jesus Christ. And the moment you watch somebody that believes so much in what, they're, what they believe in, they believe it, that they're willing to die for it, you have to go, what in the world? Now, I know today people strap bombs to themselves and they blow others up. See, it's one thing to blow others up. It's another thing to die, not to kill others, but another thing to die on behalf of others. You believe so much in it that you'll die because you want them to believe in it, not kill them for it. See, that's the difference between martyrdom in some faiths and martyrdom in what I'm talking about. And he comes in and he says, if there's no resurrection, these people are stupid. Stupid. But, he's going to lay out this case, but there's people that are now being baptized. See, at this time when you get baptized, it's not like here. Like the worst thing here when we get baptized is you go home wet. When you got baptized at this time, the moment that you said, I believe in Jesus Christ, I'd like to join him in his death and in his resurrection, you were saying to the world, you can take my house, you can take my family, you can even take my life. I am going to follow Jesus Christ. See, at this time to be baptized was a very, very serious thing. And Paul is coming to him, and he's saying, if there's no resurrection, what in the world? Why would people do this? It's stupid. Look at verse 30. Why am I? Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting of the Lord, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul literally would wake up every day with the knowledge, I could die. And in, in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, man, I was whipped 39 times or five times over with the cattails. I was beaten, I was bruised, I was let down out of the city gates. They thought I was dead. Why would I do this if I didn't believe there was a resurrection? It makes no sense. And let me say something really clearly, okay? And please listen, even those of you that checked out five minutes ago. The Christian life will look crazy. Okay, let me say this again. The Christian life will look a little imprudent. The Christian life, people will say, uh, that's a little unbalanced. I'm seeking Zen in my life, balance. Just look at my house, I've designed it in such a way for balance. But can I tell you something? Some of the most unbalanced people in the world I would be happy to follow. I know one, his name is Jesus Christ. At his time, he was considered one of the most unbalanced men that there was alive. Who comes after him? Peter, Paul, John. Talk about unbalanced guys. 
Can you imagine Paul standing up front? Hey, to live in Christ, to die is gain. Oh, Paul, that's unbalanced. A little imprudent. Let's not push it. I've counted all things as just a bunch of manure in light of knowing Christ. Hey. Relax, Paul. A little crazy. But I really believe if we're going to understand this life, I believe we are going to have to buy into this reality. The Christian life, if we believe there's a resurrection, is going to look a little nutty. And the world's going to go, what? But as we get marched off to possibly our death, which will never happen in the United States, for now, but the world's going to go, huh? And I think the best community to start to live this out in, and I, that's why I'm preaching it today, is Simi Valley, California. See, because Paul goes on. Watch this in verse uh, 32. If from human motives I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? He's saying it doesn't. Because if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, if there's nothing about it, he said, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, see, here's what's cool about that statement. I used to think it was hedonism. And I was like, okay, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That means let's go smoke a bowl. Let's go get drunk. Let's go solicit a prostitute. Let's go crazy. Come on, everybody. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Those were hedonists. Who he was speaking about, this statement was Epicurean. See, the Epicureans would have looked at the hedonists and said, hey, a little crazy. Don't be going and doing that. That's why we have police. Relax. Their goal in life was to eliminate pain at all costs. They wanted to get rid of pain. They wanted safety and comfort and security. And everything they did, they revolved their lives around obtaining this nice, comfy life in fact they were the first kind of culture to say good food and good friends now i don't know if this sounds familiar but if there's any group of people that i think would explain the united states it's this epicurean lifestyle because in our culture the moment i get a headache oh aspirin aspirin quickly i leave something my joints are achy Anything that we can do to eliminate pain, we do it. And in fact, even them at this time, they believed the worst pain to have was mental pain. The Epicureans taught. And can I tell you something? We live in a culture that by far, on an astronomical rate, has the most depressed people in the world. It's documented. We take more psychotropic drugs, which are drugs that basically numb the mind because of the pain that's going on in life. We take, and again, I'm not mocking anybody. I'm just trying to throw it out because I understand we do have people in here that are are in pain. But we take more psychotropic drugs than any other culture combined. All of them, we take more. And my thought is, is this, this Epicurean lifestyle of trying to comfort and security in my job and if this is so important, then why are we so stinking depressed? And Paul is going to take these two lifestyles and he's going to lay one out here, the Epicurean lifestyle, and one over here, the resurrection lifestyle, and he's going to say, you can't have both, you got to choose. And right now, probably in our church here, including the guy standing up here talking to you, is going, whoa. 
Because we all know we've bought into this, haven't we? The world has crept into the church and we've said, yeah, we like it. And Paul goes, don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, isn't there something inside of you that just wants to go crazy and actually live this resurrection life over here? I mean, isn't there something in the guys here that just want to go home today and say, baby, I got good news. We're going to sell our house. We're going to sell our cars. We're going to sell everything. And your wife's going to go, we'll be homeless. And you'll go, yeah, that's my point. We're going to do homeless ministry. What do you think? And she's like, what's happened to my husband? And I would say what's happened to your husband is he is starting to get this resurrection life. He's starting to understand that the houses that we live in, and I praise God, like I'm not gonna ever look at God and say, God, unthank you for this, okay? But don't you ever just wanna just do something crazy? Don't you wanna just forsake everything and follow Jesus Christ? Go with me to Luke 12 real quick. Let me show you something. Luke 12. Tell them hi for me. <laughs> Luke 12. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm sorry, Luke 14. Now you're going to wonder who's doing drugs. Luke 14. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 12. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do you not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors? Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. In other words, Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, good food and good friends, right? If you really want to be happy, this is who you invite in. But then Jesus goes, just like Jesus does. He's so unbalanced. But... When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and he says, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See that word blessed? That word blessed in, in the Greek is a Greek word makareos, which just means to be ultimately happy. You want to be crazy happy? You want to have a happiness that goes beyond this good food and good friends? Inviting people that can never pay you back. Inviting people that you never would invite into your home. Hey, Todd, a little unbalanced. They're dirty. They might eat me out of house and home. But Jesus says you will be ultimately happy. And I know in your heads right now, you must be thinking, you've got to be kidding me, Todd. No way would I be ultimately happy. You don't understand my friends and family. They're great. But I'd say to you, are you going to question Jesus? Because look, go back from the 1 Corinthians 15. See, the problem we face on, is verse 33. Do not be deceived, he says, 1533. Bad company corrupts good morals. My mom always used to say this to me. Hey, boy. Who are you hanging out with? And then she would remind me, bad company, corrupts good morals, Todd. You know? Do you know Paul didn't even mean that? And now I can call my mom up and say, you lied to me. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
See, the bad company are those of you that will leave today and go, yeah, let's do this. I'm going to downsize my house because I don't need it anymore because I, all my kids are grown and I'm going to move into an apartment. I'm going to take all that money and I'm going to give it to the poor and I'm going to keep my job making six or seven figures and I'm going to figure out how to give more because I've downsized my life. Imprudent. A little crazy, Todd. And then somebody's going to look at you and go, ah, that's not what the Bible means. Todd's 34. He's young. He's naive. Let me tell you what Jesus really meant, okay? And then they'll come up with some cockamamie story. I say that in love. Because if you do it, how are they going to feel? Oh, so guilty, aren't they? And so it's like, hey, don't go so crazy, you know? I just bought a $500 driver. Knock it down the center every time, you know what I'm saying? I might actually sell that bad boy if you say this to me. See, this bad company, the people that we put ourselves around, in fact, the moment somebody walks up to you, and if you do something crazy, and some of you I know checked out because you know this is this 34-year-old crazy guy that wants utopia, and he's crazy. I know, but there's, I know some of you sitting here today that go, yeah, I'll do that. I'm going to figure out how to do this very thing you're going to talk about because I know you've got a good answer for me at the end. And the moment that somebody looks at you and goes, improve, a little crazy, I would look at him and say, give him a hug, and say, bad company corrupts good morals. And then hug him again and walk away. Because keep going with me. Look at verse 34. He says, become sober-minded. Think well. See, the problem with wealth that Jesus talks about, and the problem with things, and the problem with all this stuff, is it distracts us from the most important stuff. See, Jesus knew that if you could just get rid of all the stuff that was around you, you would keep your eyes focused on him. Paul says, let us strip off everything in Hebrews 12 that so easily entangles us, and including sin, so that I can focus on where I'm supposed to go. And see, the problem with living in the United States, which I'm glad I live here, I'm proud to be an American, all those different things, so please don't accuse me of being a communist America hater by the time I'm done. But the problem with living here in this cement jungle world, is it's so easy to lose focus on God. See, when I'm here and I'm comfy and I'm chilling on my couch, watching high-definition TV, I don't want to go to heaven so bad. Right? And Jesus knew that. He knew that the more stuff we put around ourselves and the more we got ourselves caught up in recreation and toys, that pretty soon, not only would I neglect even wanting to go to heaven, I would neglect even wanting to spend time with him. See, the number one robber of our time with the Lord is not our job and it's not our family. It's our toys, our TVs and things. And again, I'm not, if you have a TV, don't go throw it away or burn your rock music, okay? That's not what I'm doing here. I'm just saying have we missed it? Possibly. And he goes on and says this. Be sober-minded. Think clearly as you ought and stop. Uh-oh. What? Sinning. See, anytime I find my pleasure outside of God, that is called what? Sin. See, any time that I seek to find any type of pleasure outside of God, 
I have just crossed over a line into sin. This Epicurean lifestyle that we pursue like crazy, and I know I'm saying the S word, is sin. See, I used to just think, oh, no big deal, not a big thing. But literally, this is what Paul means. It's an offense to God because anything that takes our attention off of God, it's called an idol. And that idol, if you read the Old Testament, we abhor. And people will say to me all the time, they come into my office and they go, oh, but Todd, I gave my kids everything. Why do they hate me? Because in the Old Testament, it says whatever you idolize will turn on you and destroy you. The reason your kids are doing this is because you made them something more than they are. And they're spoiled and they're brats and bring them over and I'll spank them. (laughs) Kidding. Now that I do foster care, I can't spank. (laughs) This is being taped. I have to be careful. And why would Paul even say that? This last part. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. See, when we allow things to get in our way, the problem is, is we're not conveying then a proper message of God. When I convey to people, yeah, yeah, I got God, but have you seen my new bike? (laughs) Wham! Have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you seen this? Have you seen... And then all of a sudden, this stuff all gets in the way and we don't say, have you seen the cross? It's awesome. And connected to it is this amazing tomb and Jesus rose from the grave. It is so awesome. You ought to test drive it. I'm telling you. See, the more stuff we get in our way, the more that we stop conveying this amazing message that God saved me. And so it's going to look a little crazy. But that's why I'm glad Paul included verse 51 in chapter 15. See, people are going to look at us like we're a little nutty. I know that. But you know like when we're standing in front of God, we ain't going to look so nutty anymore, if you know what I mean. Suddenly everybody's going to look at us, you know, all those people that used to say, ooh, a little imprudent, a little crazy. I don't think that is uh, financially wise. And suddenly as we stand in front of God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, it's going to all make a lot of sense at that point. See, Paul goes on, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. Bang, like this, in a twinkle of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, never to decay again is what imperishable means. And we will be changed. Your molecules, do you understand that? The day that I stand in front of God, my molecules will be radically changed. This gut that I'm constantly fighting Talk about a weight loss program, amen? (laughs) My trick knee molecularly will be changed and I won't need aspirin. Yeah, amen. (laughs) That's my amen section down here right now. Next week, you can join her. For $19.99, I also have a prayer cloth. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is what's going to happen. 53, for this imperishable, what is decaying, must put on the imperishable. What is not decaying, and this mortal, this one that dies, must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, you know what everybody is pursuing in, this, in our country? This whole thing of lack of, we, we gotta get comfortable. We can't have pain. We can't have all these things. I gotta have security and safety and all this stuff. You know what? I believe that is implanted inside of every person, a desire for it, but the only place they're gonna experience it is not here. Let me just, and hold your chairs, I'm telling you. This may just flip you out and I don't wanna hurt people around you. You cannot escape pain. You cannot be ever secure. You cannot experience ultimate comfort. Because in this life, it says there are trials and tribulations, and the moment we think we've escaped it, God reminds us by giving us cancer, by giving us some other terminal disease. And Paul says he does this to us. Why? So that we'll trust in ourselves? No, he says he allows trouble and conflict and trial to come into us to remind us this is not our home. We don't belong here. In 1 Peter and Hebrews it says we're strangers and aliens. We're just passing through. This is Motel 6 and Tom Bodet left the light on, but it's almost time to go. And I know there's some of you crazy people out there that you pull into Motel 6 or if you've got more money than me into the something... I like Tom, all right? We're friends. Back off. <laughs> On our anniversary, we stay at Motel 8. It's an upgrade. <laughs> but you, you ever seen those people that unpack their clothes in a hotel? And you know if you're here and you're one of them. See, that's the problem. We do that here. We're strangers. We're aliens. We don't belong here. This is a life of pain and struggle both mental pain, physical pain. And what Paul says to do actually is not to run from it or try to hide from it or try to numb it. You know what Paul says to do? He says embrace it. Because when I embrace my pain, James 1 says, that God uses that pain in my life and if you don't numb it, if you don't try to hide from it, it takes and it grows you and it strengthens you and it turns you into this amazing conveyor of the truth about God and it tells you what's important in life but the problem is we're so busy trying to hide from it that we're turning into these weak, malnutritioned Christians because we're trying to hide from the very thing that God wants to use to remind us this isn't our home and we're trying to pour our lives into something that only is going to come when I'm with my Savior. And if you don't believe me, go to Revelation 21 with me. You've got to see this. John is standing there and he's just seen the new heavens and the new earth. God destroyed this earth. He destroyed the heavens. He created a new heaven and a new earth. Down comes this new Jerusalem that's, that signifies this, this tabernacle, this, whole, this where God meets with his people in this new kingdom. And look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. This is Jesus. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And look at this. See, this is everything we're craving for in verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying, or look at this word, pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne, behold, I am making all things new, and he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. That's where the pain-free life exists. 
And in fact, as we prolong this life trying to stay young, we're only hindering getting to the next life, which suddenly we'll understand what we mean by this. I wonder where are the Jim Elliots today who understood, who understood the idea that, look, you can't take from me what's not yours, but also I can't lose what's, what God has given to me. Where are the people that live radical? Where are the people in Simi Valley, California? I believe this church, Cornerstone Community Church, starts to live a radical life. We are going to blow the minds of not just people in Simi Valley, but around. You want your friend to come to know Christ? Don't try to bamboozle him into the kingdom by saying, hey, woo, the Christian life is fun. No, look at him and go, I'll tell you what the Christian life is. All who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now come and join me because in heaven it's not going to happen anymore. And you don't want to face hell. Those of you that are retired, can I throw something at you? And I know I'm a young, naive 34-year-old, so you, afterwards you can just come up and hug me and shake your head and pat me on the head. And give me a chiclet. <laughs> what about if you sat down with your kids, did a conference call even, maybe they don't live around here, and you say, kids, good news. Your mother and I have decided that we will be giving you no inheritance because we don't want you to fight over the money and we instead want to use it to do big, giant kingdom things. You guys are fine. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> what if instead of using that motorhome to go fishing you went fishing for men what if instead of doing all these things of retirement of going off the green valley and playing golf I don't know what you'd do instead go help out in the children's ministry I don't know but what if a guy that I know, 55 years old, and he's looking at moving into retirement, decided to adopt children. Isn't that great? See, he was sick and tired of Christians complaining that gays are starting to adopt, gays are starting to adopt. Nah, 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 nah. He said, fine, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to tell other Christians to start shutting up until they start to put their money where their mouth is. And he went out and adopted children. Yeah, but gays are doing foster care. Well, then shut up and do something about it. Get out there. If you're in your 50s, 40s, man, can I encourage you? If you've got still kids at home, a high schooler, they don't take care of their car anyway. Sell it. Give the money to the poor. Talk about teaching them about the resurrection, amen? <laughs> High schoolers right now are like, <laughs> if you're my age, maybe 20s or 30s, and uh, maybe you already have kids, stop and adopt. What if all of us that are of this age just decided, you know what? There's enough kids out there. What if we just went crazy and started spending our money on these kids that are already born, that need to know the Savior, 
We trained him up, and then as eight-year-olds, we looked at him, and we said, let me explain to you the resurrection life. I'm praying for you to be a martyr one day. Kid, first of all, won't understand what it is, but hey, later he will, and he'll go, what the heck? <laughs> if you're in high school or college, man, don't fall into the trap that we are. We're caught up in this life, and the word that the high schoolers and college students hear all the time is, I would, but I am busy. Busy doing what? Oh, I got a mortgage, I've got cars, I've got things, I've got stuff, I've got to take care of the la, 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 bad choices I've made in the past. If you're a high school student, just don't go there. In fact, if you're a college student, try this. Freak out your parents and say, I'm quitting college and I'm selling everything and I'm going to live in some country where there's nothing and that's what I've decided to do. And then run. <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm putting it out there to think about. What if? I just wonder if we look back and we see the early church in Acts and we call them unbalanced. And what if it's us? What if they got it right? What if normal Christianity then that we consider radical is actually should be normal Christianity today? And I'm just throwing it out there. And we're not going to have the prayer room today because actually I want you to sit by yourself and have to think through this. Because this has plagued my mind and I want to enjoy other, have other people enjoy my pain, embrace the pain. And I'd like for you, if, if you could, go home and talk to your wife. And really say, do we really believe this is true? And so, what are we going to do about it? And then freak your kids out. If you're somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ and you want to know him, I'll be over there. I'd love to talk to you. If you're somebody that wants to join in baptism, man, we'll be over there. We'll dunk you. Gosh, we will. And when we throw you out of the water, we'll go, welcome to the resurrection. Now go live like it. What if we were just a little crazy?